First Chronicles 4, 14. And Manoah Thai beget Ophrah, and Saraiah beget Joab, the father of the valley of Cherishim, and they were craftsmen. I want to talk to you about this valley of craftsmen today. My title is Living Your Legacy. Living Your Legacy. Legacy. Thank you for worshiping. Standing, you may be seated. God bless you. Well, it's no surprise that tomorrow, September 5th, we'll celebrate Labor Day in the United States of America. Labor Day pays tribute to all of the workers, the achievements by workers in our country, and it's typically observed on the first Monday of September. First, Congress passed an act. Uh, that affected in the District of Columbia and some territories. Then on June 28th in 1894, President Grover Cleveland signed into law making Labor Day an official national holiday. Labor Day unofficially marks the end of summer and the beginning of college football. I made the mistake of saying go something this morning and... It was very divisive in the church here with so many people loyal to Jesus only. Go Jesus. He's my hero. Amen. Well, in case you're wondering, in fashion, Labor Day is or was considered the last day in which it was acceptable to wear white or seersucker. So you just file that away for future reference starting Tuesday. It's somewhat of a coincidence that I'm preaching this message on Labor Day weekend. Wasn't strategically planned for that reason, but my message does have a lot to do with labor and with life and with the legacy that you leave. Webster's Dictionary says that legacy is a gift by will especially of money or other personal property. A legacy is something transmitted by or received from an ancestor or a predecessor or from the past. Legacy is what you leave to those that you love and live for. So what is your legacy? I believe as I've thought about this a lot and studied this, it is more than what you will one day leave behind. Legacy is a reflection of who you are right now. You are living your legacy, and one day when you pass from this life, you will leave that legacy behind. Legacy is the story of your life. It's unfolding in real time, and it's inspired by what is meaningful, what is most important, and fulfilling for you. You're living your values today. And those values implemented by the decisions you make, by your actions, attitude, your choices, that is a reflection of the legacy that you're living and will one day leave behind. So you're, you're building your legacy today. In the last couple of weeks of my mom's life, she would have these conversations. Sometimes she was 
coherent, sometimes not. That was not normal for her, but she was in the process of passing away. And she would talk, and then sometimes she would say, you know, but that, but that don't matter to me. That doesn't matter to me. And then other times she would say something, and she'd say, with tears in her eyes, you know, that matters to me. That really matters to me. I never remember my mom saying that. Uh, maybe she did, but it wasn't something that was a saying of hers. But at the close of her life, she was thinking about what really mattered most to her. I think it was part of her values, and to me, it was part of my mom's legacy. So your legacy is the difference you're making now and also the difference you will make when you're gone. Your legacy is who you are and what you do to make things better today. It will also have an effect on future generations. The Bible says of King David of Israel that he served his generation well and fell on sleep. David left a notable legacy, but it was because the way he served in life that he was remembered in death. So to leave a legacy, you must first live it. If your legacy is a financial inheritance, you must first earn that money before you can leave it behind. And after earning it, you have to preserve it so there is something to be left when you pass from this life. You can't leave something that you don't have. So I've been thinking about this for some time, and I was drawn to this verse in 1 Chronicles 4, 14, about the legacy of these craftsmen. So it made me think about other places, regions of the country that are known for certain things. If you live in Georgia, you probably know that Dalton, Georgia, is known as the carpet capital of the world. The industry employs more than 30,000 people in Whitfield County in that area. More than 90% of the functional carpet produced in the world today is made within a 65-mile radius of the city of Dalton, Georgia, the carpet capital of the world. Well, I was curious as to how that legacy was shaped. So I went back and I started reading about it. I learned that this amazing carpet industry in Dalton can be traced back to a wedding gift that was given in 1895 by a teenage girl named Catherine Evans Whitener to her brother, Henry Alexander Evans, and his bride, Elizabeth Kramer. The gift was an unusual tuft bedspread. She copied a quilt pattern, sewed thick carton yards with the running stitch into unbleached muslin. Then she dipped the ends of the yarn so they would fluff out. Finally, the wash, she washed the spread in hot water to hold the yarns in by shrinking the fabric. Well, interest grew in young Catherine's bedspreads. And in 1900, she made and sold the first one for $2.50. Demand for her spreads became so great that by the 1930s, local women had haulers who would take the stamped sheeting and yarns to front porch workers. Often, entire families worked to hand-tuff the spreads 
for 10 to 25 cents per spread. Nearly 10,000 area cottage tufters, men, women, and children, were involved in this industry in the area of Dalton, Georgia. The income generated by that preserved some of them through the Great Depression. Well, later, chenille bedspreads became popular all over the country, and it provided a new name for Dalton. Dalton was called the bedspread capital of the world. And then a form of mechanized carpet making was developed after World War II. And Dalton became the center of this new industry because specialized tufting skills were required. And the city of Dalton already had a pool of workers with those skills. So Dalton, Georgia has a legacy as the carpet capital of the world that goes back to a one single gift that a girl gave to her brother and his bride. I was also thinking about something that has a unique history, and that is furniture built in Amish country. Maybe you've heard about the quality of that furniture. I read an article called Amish, Amish Carpenters Start Learning Woodworking Early. In Amish country, practical skills and trades are taught from a very young age. Everything from cooking to woodworking is passed down through generations. That's part of the pride and integrity that goes into every piece of furniture that is created in Amish country. Each piece is made by hand. They use solid wood only, and they refuse any wood that is filled with flaws. They usually don't use nails or screws, which I found interesting. They choose other methods for fastening that wood together. Amish furniture making is often a family affair, and the art of furniture making is a part of their cultural heritage. It's part of their legacy. So it's hard not to produce top-notch work when the process hits so very close to home. Amish families have cultivated a culture of furniture making, and among other things, that's what they're known for. I was reading then about Jewish history and some of the culture there. Rabbi Victor S. Apple wrote about a father's responsibility to his son in Jewish culture. They're outlined in the Talmud. According to the text, a Jewish father is obligated to circumcise his son to redeem him if he's the firstborn son. He is to teach him the Torah He's to find a wife for him. He's also to teach him a trade. And then another thing that was added somewhere along the line, a Jewish father is to teach his son to swim. It's considered a survival skill for life. And I thought about that, and my mind went to Simon Peter, who was taught to swim. He was a fisherman, but he jumped in the water with his fisherman's coat on, and he swam a hundred yards to get to Jesus. You can read that story in John chapter 21. Per capita, Jewish people are the most successful people in the United States and also in the world. The idea of legacy that is passed down from one generation to the next is rich in their culture. And somewhere... Living your legacy 
was sparked in my mind by what otherwise to me was this obscure verse in 1 Chronicles chapter 4. And Menothai begat Ophrah, and Sariah begat Joab, the father of the valley of Cherishim, for they were craftsmen. I was doing my Bible reading when I ran across this verse again. I've read this numerous times, but it really stuck in my mind. And I just want to say thank God for the Bible readers who don't cheat when you get to Chronicles. You know, you're not planning your family vacation while you're reading the genealogies of the first eight chapters of 1 Chronicles. Strange names to the Western mind, lots of begats, but paying attention pays off. It's in 1 Chronicles 4.10 that we read the prayer of Jabez that became a very popular book published in 2000 by Bruce Wilkinson that is a very good book and a tremendous concept. I was doing my riveting reading in 1 Chronicles this year, and when I got to verse 14, it stuck in my head. I copied it, I pasted it into Evernote, where I have ideas for sermons and lessons for the future, and I thought, I'm going to get back to that. That's intriguing to me, and I want to know more about it, this valley of craftsmen. Well, the amazing anointed word of God catches your attention. And when I went back, I learned some things that I'd like to share with you today. I tried to read everything I can find about the valley of craftsmen. Joab is the father of this valley of craftsmen, for they were craftsmen. He's the father of it, not just the father of a kid. He's the father of a craft. He's the father of a region. He's the father of a legacy that was left to others. The name Cherishim, or in some translations, Jeherashim, it literally means the valley of craftsmen. It was located with a cluster of villages, including Lod and Oh No. You've been there many times, haven't you? Oh no. It's about 30 miles west of Jerusalem, maybe uh, near Lydda, a few miles east of Joppa. I know you know where that is in your Bible geography studies. Well, I told you I read as much as I could find about this. Some translations say it's the valley of artificers. They put things. One paraphrase broke it down into good old modern English. Sariah was the father of Joab who settled a place called the Valley of Crafts because the people who lived there were experts in making things or things if you live in the deep, deep south. That's the Valley of Craftsmen, a place where they made things. Well, I started thinking, how did Joab become the father of the Valley of Craftsmen? Well, he must have been trained to be a craftsman, perhaps a carpenter, right? Then he trained his son to do that. And all of his sons did that. And then Joab's grandsons were trained by Joab's sons to be craftsmen. Uncles and cousins must have joined in and were employed in the same type of work 
of making things. And then if you live nearby and you wanted to have a piece of furniture made, maybe by word of mouth said, you know what you need to do? Go down to Lod and oh no, in that, that valley there, those guys are really good. They make great furniture. They make great things there. And so people started going down to this valley and somewhere along the line, somebody said, why don't you just go down to the Valley of Craftsmen? It was never called that before, but, but now it was. It's where people made things, and they were known for that. Now, I want to ask you a question. Do you think everybody that was a descendant of Joab was naturally gifted in carpentry or artificers or craftsmanship? I would kind of argue no. But if you were a little boy or girl, but mainly in these trays, it was little boys, and you grew up watching your dad make things from a child, you knew that's what he did, and he would teach you to do the same. In the morning, dads didn't get up, kiss their wives goodbye, get their lunchbox, catch the train, and ride off to work. They worked at home, in the community, in their little villages, so boys grew up watching their dads work. Their dads were living their legacy, and they were leaving their legacy to the next generation. So you just grew up knowing this is how you make a table or a piece of furniture or a plow or whatever it was that was made in the Valley of Craftsmen. This culture of craftsmanship was strong in the family of Kenaz, these are the descendants of Kenaz, and all of his descendants, Joab is the one who's named. In the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah refers to Lod and Ono, the valley of craftsmen in Nehemiah chapter 11. These craftsmen played such an important role in their society that when Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, was in the process of deporting Jews from Judah all the way to Babylon, he took away the princes, all the mighty men of valor, 10,000 captives. And the Bible said that Nebuchadnezzar also took all the craftsmen and the smiths so that nobody stayed in the land but the poorest among the people. If you were going to try to impoverish a land, you would take away all the essential workers. It included the craftsmen. This is intriguing to me that this valley was a place that played great significance in the history of Israel. In 2007, I was asked to write a paper on the art of mentoring and presented at a symposium at Urshan Graduate School of Theology. It's a long paper, but there's an excerpt that applies here today that fathers in agrarian societies typically mentored their sons teaching them their trade while modeling the ethics and character traits necessary for success in life. In other words, this on-the-job training wasn't just the skill of making a thing. It was how to make a life, how to have the ethics, how to sell, how to make a price, how to live a life. It was a legacy that was lived by a father and then left to the next generation. Mentoring 
It's how you create a culture. It is how you leave a legacy. It is how you cultivate a place like the Valley of Craftsmen. You know, in the ministry of Jesus, he was called both a carpenter and the son of a carpenter. Joseph, his dad, his stepdad, not his real father, Almighty God was his father, amen, that was, was conceived in Mary, was of the Holy Ghost, not of Joseph. But Joseph taught Jesus carpentry, not because he needed it to fall back on, in case he couldn't make a living in the ministry. Joseph taught Jesus craftsmanship, carpentry, because good Jewish fathers always taught their sons an honest trade or craft. Jesus learned it at the dutiful training of his stepdad, Joseph. And in case this ever crossed your mind, it did mine a couple days ago, Jesus did not turn over the tables in the temple because they were poorly made. But maybe they were. Hmm. Legacies in the Bible were the result of a culture that trained the next generation. When Joseph was talking to Pharaoh about his family in Genesis 47, Pharaoh's inquiring of Joseph, what does your family do? And Joseph said, thy servants are shepherds, both we and also our fathers. You can go back four generations to Abraham, and you'll find that Abraham, the father of the Jewish people, the father of the faithful, he was a shepherd, a herdsman. We would call him maybe a rancher. Jacob, Joseph's dad, was also a sheep herder, a rancher, and very successful at it. He had camels and donkeys and cattle and many servants. He was a very wealthy man because he lived this culture that had been passed down from generation to generation. I was thinking about other skilled people in the Bible, and my mind went to First Chronicles 12, where David was at Ziklag. He was still fearing for Saul. And there were some men who came to help him in the war. The Bible calls them mighty men. They were armed with bows, and they could use both the right hand and the left in hurling stones and shooting arrows out of a bow, and they were Saul's brethren of Benjamin. Now, I like in the Bible a whole lot when the Bible talks about some of the Benjamites who were left-handed, but these guys were switch-handed. And I will argue again that I don't believe these Benjamites were natural-born ambidextrous people. What I do believe is that when they were little boys, a dad who was a warrior taught a son, if you're going to grow up and have every advantage in battle, then you're going to need to learn to do more than use your dominant hand. Pick up that rock there, son. What feels natural to you? Are you left-handed? Are you right-handed? What's your dominant eye? Maybe that's going to guide you in how you shoot a bow or how you sling a sling. But son, we're going to learn that first. But we're not just going to be left-handed or right-handed. You're going to learn to be use your opposite hand. So pick up that inferior hand and throw a stone until it feels just as good with that hand as it does the other. Get your bow. 
and shoot it until you're good. But now I want you to shoot with the other hand until you're just as good. And the Bible said that these men could fight left-handed or right-handed, and they were good either way. I started thinking about why this could be really important. You're in a battle. You're fending off the foe. You're behind a tree or a rock. But guess what? You can move to the left and you can sling a stone or you can shoot your bow. You can move to the right of that object. You can sling a stone. You can shoot your bow. What if you're fighting and now you're wounded in battle? Your right arm is wounded. No problem. You can still sling with your left hand. They are very good at what they do because from a child, there is a culture of warriors that would raise them up. It made them versatile and valuable fighters in the war. I want to stop right now and say that we should take our children from early in their life and we need to teach them how to fight with the left hand and the right hand, that they can pray, they can worship, they've got the word of God, they can do something that will put the enemy to flight, amen? It's a culture that we're building, it's a legacy that we're living and that we are leaving, amen. In the New Testament, James and John were fishermen. We know from Mark 1 and 20 that their father Zebedee was also a fisherman. It was a trade that was taught from childhood. The Bible does not tell us what Zebedee's dad did, but I have a pretty good feeling that his father was probably a fisherman as well because typically that's what happened. You handed it down from one generation to the next. Now, throughout history, vocational skills were important to success, and it is no different today. However, it is much less common for children to grow up working in the family business. My dad did get up early in the morning, kissed my mom and the kids goodbye, and went off to work. My dad was a carpenter, but I didn't go to work with him he was a union carpenter. I couldn't go work on the 55-story high-rise in Miami. That just never happened. I worked with my dad some here and there, but it was on home projects or family projects. But you think about the child, boy or girl, who grows up in the family business, who learns more on accident than some people do on purpose. They learn menial skills. They learn how to clean. They learn how to do inventory. They learn how to stock shelves or fix a tire or build this or that or whatever it is. They have a lifetime of education when they get to adulthood that is a tremendous advantage for the future. It is one thing to be gifted a family business. It's another thing to learn and earn that family business because you grew up in it. But we are a church, amen. We are a church of people of many businesses, many backgrounds, many trades and crafts. But there is one thing that we have in common, that we are raising a generation of young men and young women, of boys and girls, that we want them to be successful in life and for eternity. Amen. I may want my boys to know how to sling a stone, but more than that, I want them to know how to pray. I want them to know the Bible. I want them to be good at God, good at doing what matters most. It's a legacy of godliness. In the Bible, godly men and women did not choose financial success over faith. 
many of the great and godly people in the Bible were very successful and extremely wealthy. But that wealth came as a result of living for God, living by God's word, and the fortune followed the character. Now, James gives us a balancing principle that God has chosen the poor of this world, rich in faith, and heirs of the kingdom of God. So because you're rich does not make you better than someone who is poor. And someone who is poor may be richer in faith than you are. In the Bible, success was seen as a result of faith. Businesses built on godly principles were successful because of that foundation. The Bible taught morals and ethics to Jewish people. Wise Jewish fathers knew that having a biblical worldview would produce success in their children. The Jewish culture has produced a disproportionate percentage of wealthy people. As I said before, the statistics speaks to the legacy that they leave their children. God honored Abraham and told him secrets of Sodom because Abraham would command his children to follow in the ways of God and not stray away from that. Joshua, the successor to Moses, was a military commander. But God spoke to him and said to Joshua, This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but you shall meditate therein day and night, that you may observe to do according to all that is written therein. For then, after Joshua, you get good at the Bible, you will make your way prosperous, and you shall have good success. I love prosperity and success that is the result of godliness, not the other way around, that it is the result of a shortcut that will soon fade away. Amen. The kings of Israel were political leaders, but the Lord gave specific instructions that every king of Israel was to make a copy of the law. He was to handwrite a copy of the law. He needed to be able to needed to be able to read and write. The Jewish people historically were educated, advanced. Amen. There's a lot of background there. I read a little bit about that, quite a bit about that actually. But here's a king. He's got to make a copy of the law. And the Lord said he has to read it every day. And the goal is that by copying and by reading the Bible, he will not be lifted up above his brethren that he's leading. He will not stray away from the words of God all the days of his life. That was the goal. It was a legacy of godliness upon which a life could be built. Psalm 78, the Lord gave us instruction that we're to know the ways of God. We're to speak to our children, showing to the generation to come the praises of the Lord. His strength, his wonderful works that he has done. He established a testimony in Jacob. He appointed a law in Israel, which he commanded our fathers, that they should make them known to their children, that the generation to come might know them. Fathers, children, their children. Even the children which should be born, who should arise and declare them to their children that they might set their hope in God and not forget the works of God, but keep 
his commandments. My brothers and sisters, on this Labor Day Sunday, I want you to be successful. But the legacy that we need to live and leave behind is more than a trade, more than a craft. It is a life of godliness. It is ethics and morality. It is a work ethic that we need to exemplify and model and mentor for the next generation. I love Philip in the Bible. Not Philip the apostle, Philip the evangelist. He was a good man in the church. Honest report, full of the Holy Ghost. He had wisdom. They put him on the benevolence committee. Out of that role in Acts chapter 6, he develops a ministry. He preaches in Samaria. We find him years later in, in a city where Paul goes in Caesarea. And Paul goes into the house of Philip the evangelist. All these years later, he's a husband. He's a father. He's got four daughters that he has raised in the church and by the Spirit. They are virtuous. They are virgins. But they also are filled with the Holy Ghost and the gifts of the Spirit. They're given to prophecy. You see, you can raise your kids. You can leave a legacy that will transcend generations. Amen. Living your legacy. Timothy didn't have a godly father. Not at all. His father was a Greek. But he had a praying mother, a godly grandmother. And Paul wrote to Timothy and he said, I call to remembrance the unfeigned faith, the genuine faith that is in thee, which dwelt first in thy grandmother Lois and in thy mother Eunice. And I am persuaded that in thee also. How was Paul persuaded of that? Because grandmother Lois taught mother Eunice. And mother Eunice taught son Timothy. And this young boy grew up with the Bible being quoted to him by a mother and a grandmother they left a legacy without a godly father in that home. They overcame everything that an ungodly father may do to make this young man grow up with the legacy of godliness. The legacy you leave behind is the one that you are living right now. Amen. In the past few years, in our church and the leaders, I've been talking a lot about creating culture. Whatever you do and say over and over creates culture. Good or bad, right or wrong, whatever you do and say over and over creates culture. The culture that you are creating forms the legacy that you are leaving behind. The legacy you're living is the one that's going to be left to the next generation. Or if you're not a parent or a grandparent, other people in your life that you are influencing. So I have some really good news for you. All the healthy attitudes and practices that you experienced in your family as a child, they form the basis for the culture that you will naturally cultivate in your family. That's your legacy. The good stuff that you saw growing up. 
But I have some not so good news for you as well. The unhealthy attitudes and practices that you experienced in your family as a child, they also form the basis for the culture that you naturally will cultivate in your family. But I believe the power of the Word of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that you can change the culture you came out of and you can be something different than what you were formed to be by your past. The Bible said if you're in Jesus Christ, you are a new creation that all things pass away and all things become new. It doesn't matter how you were raised. You can be different. You can raise your family different. You can live and leave a different legacy. Amen. I'm not talking about overcoming it by behavioral modification, although that might be important. I'm talking about the Holy Spirit working in your life, giving you power over sin, power over the past, power over the self-talk, power over the habits you saw, power over the attitudes that were exhibited in your home. You can overcome it by the power of the Spirit. Joab did not grow up in the Valley of Craftsmen. But he created it. You may not have grown up in a godly environment, but you can create it in your own life and in your family and into the people that you affect at work, the school, wherever your mission field is. You are living and you are leaving a legacy. So the way you spoke to your spouse and children this morning, that's your legacy. The spiritual, emotional, relational climate of your home, that's the legacy that you're living. And it's the same one that you're leaving behind. It is the indelible impression of the culture that you are creating every day that is your legacy. And if it's good, thank God. If it can be better, praise God. This Labor Day weekend, I pray that you would take church home with you, that the culture that we've tried to create in this church, a healthy culture, would be one that you would take home. Some people ask about our generosity in our church. How do you receive an offering of $200,000 to move the mission? Well, it's not by a single year. It's 27 years of a culture of generosity and blessing and people understanding the need, the value, and the blessing of giving. If you're relatively new to Atlanta West, it might seem like a foreign language. How can that happen? But it happens because year after year, it's what we've said and done in this church. And whatever we are as a church, good and our white spaces and our weaknesses, it's the result of the culture. So here's my message for you today. You are living a legacy. 
So let's leave church today making it better than it's ever been before, incorporating godly habits, incorporating healthy attitudes, and shaping our lives and the lives of our families for good. Amen. I don't think that when Joab taught his son how to work with wood or whatever, that he envisioned a whole valley of craftsmen who would have notoriety. But he just did what he should do and what he could do for his own sons. And they did what they could do and should do for their sons. And over time, it became the Valley of Craftsmen. It is an impressive in itself. It's just something that you cultivate in the legacy you live and the legacy you leave.